0: Hi, everyone. Samantha Sherris here, bringing you a bonus episode of the Daily Signal podcast. It's Thursday, January 12th. And joining today's show is Representative Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma. As many of you know, it took 15 rounds of voting to elect House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And even in some of those later rounds, Representative Hearn was still being nominated and voted for for the position. He shares what he first thought when he was nominated, some of his goals as the new chairman of the Republican Study Committee, and what he hopes the GOP investigates. We'll get to my conversation with Representative Hearn right after this. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. Joining today's show is Representative Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma's 1st Congressional District. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Now... As you and our listeners know, it took 15 rounds to elect Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. And even in the 12th round of voting, other members of Congress were nominating and voting for you. So first and foremost, what did you first think when your name was nominated, when people were still voting for you, even in those last rounds?
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, to have your, your peers, your colleagues, to nominate you for, for such a uh, important position is very humbling. I um, Certainly, uh, I've never been fearful of leadership roles. I've been doing it for some 35 years now in various uh, businesses and institutions. So that that wasn't the issue. The real issue was, you know, how we were going to get to a resolve and get a Speaker of the House. Uh, we'd already surpassed, you know, sort of the 100-year the mark of 1923. Now we're pushing toward the or 1856 measure. I was certainly hoping we weren't going 133 rounds. <laughs> But, uh, you know, when you look at what went on, I think this was really good for the American people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I just spoke about it. People are watching this this play out in real time. I doubt that many Americans had spent this amount of time, probably in their entire life, prior to last week, looking at what the Congress did. And you saw healthy debate, Mm -hmm. sometimes contentious debate. Uh, You saw uh, a lot of things brought up. Um, I was very... um, Again, humbled by the comments that the nominating, uh, the people who nominated me. But I still, at the end of the day, I thought that Speaker McCarthy, then Speaker-elect McCarthy, mm-hmm. was probably going to be the best person to get us to the place where we needed to be. Mm-hmm. He had all the levers of uh, information and power to get us there. And my position with uh, Speaker McCarthy was, is I'm with you until... It appears you can't get it done. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the 200 were at in resolve is until you indicate you can't get it done, then we're all with you. Mm -hmm.
0: And just to dive a little bit deeper, uh, you brought this up a little bit. When people were watching last week's process play out, we saw headlines that it was chaos, that Speaker McCarthy might become weakened um, because of some concessions. What is your response to that?
1: Well, first of all it wasn't chaos it was very orderly uh yes people got vocal because we're so typical up here people being you know things being voice voted or mm-hmm. a vote not having any push back because that's where the house has evolved to there's been no debate uh, on the floor since 2016. there's been there been no amendments uh very little interaction typically when you see the traditional videos of someone speaking on the floor there's literally like nobody there but you speaking to a camera and I thought it was very healthy, personally. Um, I've only been in Congress four years. I'm used to in business having healthy debates with people, my, you know, the people who were, I worked with, alongside uh, people who were for me, to get their thoughts and opinions. Up until last week, this was not a place you could do this. So I would say it was a win not only for economic security of this country, because a lot of the the centrality of what was being talked about was how do we get a fiscal responsible nation. But I would say equally important in this is that, is that now we've empowered uh, every member of Congress, mm-hmm. Republican and Democrat, by the way, to be able to speak on the floor, to offer amendments. Um, yes, and to even vacate the chair if necessary. Mm-hmm. But i got to tell you, these aren't like new rules. These are rules that were in place some 6, 8, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the most egregious change was under Speaker Pelosi. She basically insulated herself from being able to be vacated from the chair, which is why we got some $10 trillion in spending out of the Democrat-led Congress over the last four years.
0: Something else I wanted to talk about was the fact that you recently became the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Can you tell us a little bit more about this committee and some of your goals for it moving forward?
1: Sure. The Republican Study Committee has been around uh, 50 years in April, it started by then a staffer named Ed Fulner, who was actually the founding, one of the founding members of the Heritage Foundation, which is a very important uh, connection between the two, uh, synergies between the two groups, both inside and outside of Congress. I describe it as the conservative conscience of the Republican Conference. Mm-hmm. It's about putting forth positions on bills, positions on policy that are conservative in nature, in fact, I would go as far as to say, I don't even like to say conservative in nature. I like to say they're American in nature. Mm-hmm. They're about limited government. They're about having less intrusion into your life. It's about being responsible for, uh, to the taxpayer dollars that are sent to Washington, D.C. to, to run this great nation and uh, it's an honor to be chair of that it's a two-year term you don't get to re run, run for re-election mm-hmm. every chair that's been in, in existence in the last 50 years has got to do it for two years and then move on mm-hmm. uh, the members uh, we represent about 80 percent of the entire conference so there's wow. there are 222 members of the republican conference we have about 170 members in the rsa from the most conservative freedom caucus members to, to the most moderate groups in, in the Republican uh, conference or in, in the RSC. We work on policy, not politics. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I also wanted to dive into something that actually was announced on Tuesday. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin released this memo rescinding the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for members of the armed forces. I saw you put out a tweet on this, so I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, this memo and this uh this announcement.
1: Yeah, so it's sort of always a mixed emotions, right? We want our military men and women to be, you know, uh warfighter ready if you will, uh being able to be deployed anywhere in the world, but there never was this consistent message with the COVID-19 vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um didn't mean as a civilian you couldn't take it if you didn't want to. I mean, we we politicized this, but there was never a, an affirmation that this was going to prevent you from getting COVID-19. Uh, you know, they take yellow fever vaccinations to prevent you from getting yellow fever and it actually works. And so as this thing progressed, I mean, the, the evolution of the COVID-19 shot and the people that were vaccinated were getting it too. Mm-hmm. This, and they were actually kicking people out of the military, uh, for what it was doing the harm. But now we're learning, you know, post that time of, you know, birth defects, we're learning with you know, pregnancies that are having challenges. We're learning with people that continue to, to die after getting the shot, mm-hmm. This was the right thing to do. The sad thing is, is that it took a, a mandate from Congress, through the NDAA, to make this actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really took a legislative action uh, to, to make this happen. And, and as a leader of the largest you know, organization in the country, meaning the military, uh, Secretary Austin should have done a better job.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about investigations. Who are you hoping that the GOP investigates, and and are you thinking of spearheading any investigations?
1: RC won't be spearheading any investigations. Okay. Not necessarily in our purview. I, you know, while the investigations are going on through our two primary uh, accountability committees, which are Judiciary and uh, Oversight, that's that's where that's going to be. Um, what. And then we have subcommittees on many of the certainly larger committees of jurisdiction like Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce that have their own oversight subcommittees, uh, education, labor, that will be investigating the either the inappropriate use or the misuse mm-hmm. or abuse of taxpayer dollars to fund things like wokeism or you know redirecting monies out of the uh, fossil fuel industry and illegally to other industries just because the, the – um, um, Secretary of Commerce or some others may have done that, Secretary of State, so they can redirect from around the world. What we're going to be looking at is accountability to the spending process, mm-hmm. so st- strictly in that policy world. I think it's important that uh, we don't get bogged down in, in, as a total conference in obstructing uh, Congressman Jordan and Congressman Comer's work as they methodically walk through the subpoena process and the subpoena power they have as chairs to get to these things such as why now we're learning that on November 2nd, six days before the election, that then Vice President Biden had taken classified documents and they have been sitting around his private office for six years. And we know that DOJ knew this six days before the election and chose not to release this. Mm -hmm. Yet they were perfectly willing to attack Mar-a-Lago in an election window for President Trump. Mm-hmm. Seems a little bit uh, like there's some you know, posturing there that's interfering with a proper election and the future of uh, the presidency in 24. When you look at the Hunter Biden laptop that the DOJ has lost and can't find, uh, any other agency out there, local police agency, state police agency, uh, would be completely investigated how they lost evidence so critical mm-hmm. to a relationship with two of the most talked about nations in the world today, China and Ukraine, as it related to Hunter Biden and his involvement with the president and uh, in, in sitting in the White House today. These are things that the American people need to understand. This is not about, you know, this is not about oversight necessarily. It's about being accountable. Mm-hmm. And we've got to get credibility and accountability back in the Department of Justice to the FBI. It's paramount in us being a safe nation as we move forward.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about these classified documents that were found at the Penn Biden Center. Uh, CNN reporting that 10 classified documents, including U.S. intelligence memos and briefing materials that cover topics, including Ukraine, Iran and the United Kingdom, were found. Now, President Biden did weigh in on this on Tuesday, and we have some audio that we're going to play now per ABC News.
2: People know I take classified uh, documents, of classified information seriously. When my lawyers were clearing out my office at the University of Pennsylvania, they set up an office for me, secure office in the Capitol, when I, the four years after being vice president, I was a professor at Penn, uh, they found some documents in a box, you know, locked cabinet, or at least a closet. And as soon as they did, they realized there were several classified documents in that box. And they did what they should have done. They immediately called the archives, immediately called the archives, turned them over to the archives, and I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. My lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review and which I hope will be finished soon and uh, there'll be more detail at that time.
0: So, Congressman, what are your thoughts on the President's comments?
1: Well, I, th- I think it shows uh, how easy it is to take classified documents out mm-hmm. of a facility, uh, namely the White House and uh, other briefings. Uh, clearly, our Commander-in-Chief is privy to a lot of activity, mm-hmm. uh, more so than probably anyone else uh, around the world, activities from the State Department, um, you know, obviously Department of Defense and, and certainly Department of Energy. And I think it's, uh, it's important that we get to the bottom of how easy it is for the, the chain of custody of these classified documents. And that, mm-hmm. that in and of itself and this whole investigative process we're doing right now with uh, Congressman Comer and Congress, Congressman Jordan's committees mm-hmm. needs to be investigated and put some, you know, we need to make some fundamental changes in how that works.
0: We saw earlier this week as well, Texas Representative Pat Fallon uh, filing articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Um, do you think we will, will we will see more impeachments coming from the GOP?
1: Well, I think we need to be focused. I, I actually called for first for Mayorkas back in February of mm-hmm. 2022 to uh, resign, mm-hmm. and we had a, a meeting with him with 40 of our Republican members at the border caucus meeting, uh, at the Capitol, uh, to, to his credit, he showed up for the meeting was very, very defiant then that there was any problem when there'd been some two and a half million people had crossed at that time since under his watch, um, secretary Marcus has been involved with the border since 2005 as a deputy Homeland security director and other immigration processes over the years at, from California. And, um, It is amazing to the American people, based on everything that we've seen, uh, that he still thinks there's control of the southern border. Mm -hmm. Uh, In October of 2022, uh, I think I was the first to formally call for him to uh, be impeached. Mm -hmm. Uh, I stand by that. Uh, I haven't seen Congressman Fallon's articles. But if a person is refusing, he or she is refusing to do their job, that they're constitutionally swore their oath to do, then they need to be removed. And if the President of the United States, from whom Secretary Mayorkas works for, Mm -hmm. is not going to do his constitutional duty in in making sure he has the right cabinet members in the right position, then it falls upon the Congress to do their job, which is set up the Articles of Impeachment. Um, I think it sends a message to America that we're not going to allow the southern border to continue to stay open. Uh, Republicans are in charge. We're going to move forward with securing the southern border.
0: Congressman, just before we let you go, um, what are some of the main issues, aside from investigations and impeachments, that the Republican Party will be focused on this Congress?
1: Yeah, I think two of the most important issues, again, I think the critical uh, central focal point of everything that was talked about last week uh, was fiscal responsibility and empowering Congress. If you look at the fiscal responsibility standpoint, it's really about a balanced budget, which the RSC, and Republican Study Committee, has done for years now. I chaired that committee uh, that, in that budget process for the last two years, so I'm uh, intricately familiar with what uh, the budget looks like and what it should look like. Mm-hmm. So that's important to get that on the floor. American people need to see us be responsible with their taxpayer dollars. The second faction of that is that we need to fund the government in regular order. That's uh, that's D.C. speak for let's do our jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the core job we're supposed to do which is fund the government appropriately and 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 being responsible in a balanced way and then putting the 12 spending bills out there with republican support and then send them to senate and have the senate do their job Mm -hmm. um the whole issue with empowering the the congressional members we'll see that play out over the next you know two years under speaker mccarthy's watch i believe it will happen Mm -hmm. Uh, the balanced budget and the appropriation bills we have to get those done between now and the 1st of June uh, and get those sent over to the Senate. It is my hope the RSC will be working steadily and steadfast in making that happen from our perspective and pushing on the leadership to make it happen. And it's incumbent upon the other 40 or 50 members outside of RSC to help us get there. And so it's exciting. It should be exciting for the American people because at the end of the day, they were the real winners last week.
0: Well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining our show today. I really appreciate it and love to have you back on in the future. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to my bonus episode, an interview with Representative Kevin Hurd. If you haven't gotten a chance, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll be back with you shortly for top news.
2: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.